Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Hey, Desi. Hi. Let's start out by thanking our Patreon contributors for this past week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Vicky, Sasha, Freya, Alina, Tammy, Jennifer, Becky, Heather, another Heather, Brianna, Angela, Zoe, Jessica, Michael, Anne, Emmy Who, Sarah, Shamin, Tracy, Rachel, Camille, Chris, Emily, Narelle, Catherine, Jen, Heather, Mercedes, Aussie Dan, Patrick, Laura, Susan, Jess, Ava, Magenta, Ian, Lucro, Jacqueline, Emma, Lumi, and Lucy. Thanks, guys. So nice of you guys. Uh, we will be recording our after show right after this episode. So we really hope you have been enjoying them. And we have more content too this week. You know, it's the end of the month drop. Oh yeah. We, <laughs> we do a big drop at the end of the month where yeah. we drop all this extra content on Patreon. Yeah. Uh, like extra episodes. Like we have like the full other so show we're gonna that we record do. record two bonuses tonight for Patreon. So maybe we'll spread them out. Look, Desi, I'm already exhausted just hearing about it. I'm excited. <laughs> okay. I know it's going to be good. Okay. So, but we have more to do on the fucking case that you've been talking about for eight Dude. years. Okay. <laughs> I honestly, I'm like, I started working on my next week's episode and I'm like, I don't even know how to do this anymore. <laughs> like I'm, I feel like I haven't done it in like eight years or something. I'm so rusty. I was like, what the fuck did Desi even talk about last time? <laughs> I, I like couldn't even remember. So this is, Part four, the final chapter of the Cotton Club movie murder case. Great. Let's get to it. I'm going to say that there's going to be a 4.5 <laughs> for the mini episode. So stay tuned because there is an addendum. It's not. Like, oh, I did the bling ring last time. So that was a 2.5. <laughs> We're doing these long ones lately. Oh, my God. Well, okay. you know what? Sometimes, sometimes stories, there's just a lot of details you can't ignore. Got to get those details. Now, uh, once again, my main source for this episode is the book Bad Company, Drugs, Hollywood, and the Cotton Club Murder by Steve Wick. I also found a lot of great information from an article by Anne Louise Bardak from 1991 called Blonde Widow. And I used a lot of newspaper articles as well for this episode. So let's get started. Where we last left off, Roy Radin's body was discovered in a canyon north of Los Angeles. Lainey Jacobs left LA and headed to Palm Springs for the summer with her boyfriend slash hired assassin, Bill Menser. Hmm. Lainey, while she was in Palm Springs, received a threatening voicemail on her machine. Remember that? 
Oh, right. She received a voicemail that was like, daddy's going to send someone to you. And someone who, the renter, of the owner of the house listened to her voice message. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. What a gold mine to find yeah. that. Lainey Jacobs moved back to Miami, but continued to travel across the country, even going back to L.A. to visit with Bill Menser. In the summer of 1984, she met 36-year-old Larry Greenberger aboard a yacht off the coast of Florida. Larry was co-owner of the yacht with Lainey's lawyer, Frank Rubino. Frank boasted an impressive list of high-profile clients, many of whom were drug traffickers. The yacht he owned with Larry was used as a commercial charter, and both men split the money from the rentals. Occasionally, Frank would take his clients out on the yacht. Larry was born and raised in the small town of Okeechobee, Florida, to parents Jerry and Dallas Greenberger. Larry was popular growing up, and he did very well in school. He attended Florida State University and majored in marketing. During his time in school in the late 60s, Larry began dealing drugs. Though he was said to be working in real estate by the 70s, he had also been working for Carlos Letter, who was a legendary drug lord from Colombia. The Los Angeles Times said of Carlos, quote, It was Letter who revolutionized the transport of cocaine to this country by a simple device, talking growers around his hometown of Medellin, Colombia, into pooling their harvests and letting him fly their cocaine into the United States in bulk. This allowed for the first mass distribution network for cocaine in the United States. So this guy was like a big player in the industry, a pioneer. uh, I like how that idea... Is was revolutionary, but it seems quite obvious to me. I mean, I guess he was just able to make it happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Larry Greenberger's partnership with Carlos Letter allowed him to become extremely rich. Greenberger was in charge of operations at the Cocaine Cutting House in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The cocaine was then shipped in mass quantities throughout California. Larry Greenberger had been on the radar of the authorities, and they worked for years to build a case against him. In 1980, Larry was arrested in Honolulu. But when investigators refused to turn over evidence to Larry and his lawyer, Frank, the case was dismissed. Ooh. So they really fucked themselves on this case. By 1981, Larry ended his business partnership with Carlos Letter and settled back down in Florida, a very wealthy man. After meeting Lainey Jacobs, Larry Greenberger moved into her home in Miami. Now, you, you remember, Lainey moves fast. Yeah. Whoever she's hanging out with, she's fucking. In September of 1984, after knowing each other for just five months, they flew to Vegas and got married. Ooh. By this time, Lainey began going by Karen Greenberger. But as Larry told his sister Janice, you can still call her Lainey. So <laughs> we're going to still call her Lainey. Okay. But her official name at this time was Karen Greenberger. Okay. I believe her first name that she was born with was Karen. Okay. Her middle name was uh, Elaine. Elaine. Yes. Lainey told Larry's sister that she had stock in Susie Cream Cheese. <laughs> And that's why uh, she was so wealthy. Okay. Susie Cream Cheese, well, not Susie Cream Cheese, but the woman who owned the boutique at Susie Cream Cheese actually got arrested for cocaine. So she did probably have some <laughs> it wasn't stock a, in it. Yeah, she was just bending the truth. Mm-hmm. In May of 1985, Larry 
and Lainey moved into Larry's remodeled farmhouse in Okeechobee. Lainey said that she wanted her son Dax to grow up in the country. Ugh. Though, though, why? I'm sorry. I just know Okeechobee. I'm just sorry. I would not call that the country. <laughs> well, that's what li- compared to Miami, this it was is the country. country. I've written reports about that town. Really? Oh yeah. When I was a kid in Florida, you have to like, you know how you have to like write a little diorama and like paper on some kind of like city in your, or whatever. Right. City in your state or you're about your state or whatever. So you chose Okeechobee? Uh, yeah. And I can't really remember why. There might be like manatees there. I'm sorry. There was something about it. I can't remember what it, exactly. Well, we I got, just think the country in Florida is like swamp. Like it is not like Midwest country. Right. It's not as nice. It's, in a, my opinion. it's a different kind of country. Yes. Yeah. Okeechobee is like, it's north of Miami and kind of in the center. Yes. It's, it, I looked at a map. It is looked, it by Orlando kind of? Ish. Yeah. It looked like it was like right on a lake. Yes, Lake Okeechobee. Oh, oh, and I may have gone to a camp there now that I said, when I said Lake Okeechobee, I was like, whoa, wait, I think I went to a summer camp at Lake Okeechobee. Wow. Yeah. The one time I went, it was horrible. Why? What happened? Because uh, I went with my cousin who was like a year older than me, but whatever that year was, was a major cutoff where I ended up being alone and Aww. she was in a different group than me. Right. So I was, I remember one sad aspect was, that depended on where you got to swim. And I was in like basically a wading pool. Like Aww. I didn't get to go in the deeper water. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how you get cut off on your age, but you're just barely on the next level. Yeah. So it was like one of those things. So I was like alone. And I would see her with like friends and I was like, I'm alone. That's mean. <laughs> it would sucked ass. I fucking hated it. Well, fuck them. Fuck Lake Okeechobee. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm, we actually are going to talk about Lake, I mean, about Okeechobee a little bit. Okay, good. Though the Greenbergers were out of the cocaine business at this point, the small town was known in the smuggling world as a hub for drops and pickups. Ooh. Some of the farm owners in the area had even made deals with the cocaine traffickers to allow them to use their property to land their jets at in the middle of the night. This was like an out-of-the-way place right. where they could do these drops and pickups undetected and it was kind of like a known thing uh, with people in the town one of larry's former associates who lived in okeechobee and was involved in smuggling said this quote the point is that larry tooling around town in his mercedes kind of blended into the general mysteriousness of okeechobee this town that was like a giant landing strip for drug pilots People had a way of accepting what was going on, even after their neighbors were arrested. You'd see some guy you knew in high school, someone from a relatively middle-class family, and now he was in a big farmhouse on a dozen acres or so, driving a Mercedes or a Jaguar. You didn't think he'd hit the lotto. This sums up Florida so perfectly. Does it? I think so, because it's... It's like a it's a real mixture where rich people don't really live too high on the hog. Like they'll live in like a weird or average neighborhood, but they'll have like a really fancy car. Yeah, or they'll have money, but it's not like flaunted. Like maybe in other areas, rich people are more obvious. Here, it's like a real you don't really know who's rich and who's not. But then you'll be like, oh wait, why are they driving that? Bentley or whatever, like <laughs> interesting, and then no one really cares or asks questions in Florida. I think it's like you just kind of keep to yourself, yeah, because shit's always happening and going on. 
The Greenbergers settled into their new life in the country, a stark difference from Lainey's previous life in Miami and L.A. Larry legally adopted Dax at the end of the year. They were a little happy, small-town family now. But Lainey still had ambitions beyond just being a housewife. Her dream was to open up a chain of plastic surgery businesses (laughs) with locations across the U.S. and... She wanted to open up a luxury plastic surgery resort in Mexico. Ooh. Honestly, this sounds like kind of a good idea. I feel like there's a movie, like the Mexican plastic surgery, like where people go away on a vacation and they come back 10 years younger. Yeah. Like that's what old celebrity, like Hollywood people used to do, right? Go to like a spa or a retreat and then they came back with a facelift or something. (laughs) Yeah. Like if there was like a place you could go, if you're very wealthy, that's like a spa, but it's not just facials. They also did like... um, Surgery and you could recover in privacy. Yeah. And you were tended to. Yeah. Like while you're recovering. So She's like an early med spa inventor. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so her dream was, was to open up this, this resort. Lainey loved cosmetic surgery. She had gotten multiple procedures done over the years and she wasn't afraid to brag about it. She's like, I got my butt done. Nice. I got, you know, a cheek implant. This is before in injections, I believe. Uh, but she's doing this shit when a lot of people weren't. And she said that too. She said, this is going to be really big in the nineties. Yeah. Like in the later eighties and nineties. And that stuff is like. You know, it's like more done now, so it's like safer and like they're better at it, I think. So doing it back then was definitely more risky, I think, when people haven't perfected things. Yeah, this is the mid-80s. And like I said, they they didn't have Botox yet at this point. I don't believe they even really were doing injectables. I think you literally got like an implant in your face. Yeah. Look, I don't know the whole history of no. I think surgery. that that's it. It's like synthetic material to sh- shape your face, which yeah. they can do now with injectables, right. To some degree, and and back then, if you got your lips done, it was like straight up collagen in your lips. Oh, really? Because they don't do collagen anymore. Yeah, I don't. I don't know enough about the history, but that would be interesting to get into like a deep dive into the history of cosmetic surgery. I'm fascinated by it, especially the very, very old timey stuff. Yeah. And how it evolved. I like the evolution. Yeah. Like what did they do for lips in the old Hollywood days? Oh my God. You know what movie I loved when I was a kid was that HBO movie called Breast Men. Oh, that sounds familiar, but I don't think I ever watched it. It is an insane movie. You need to watch it tonight. It's what it is. It is an insane movie. Breast men. It's a true story. You have Who's to watch in it. David Schwimmer. Oh God. Okay. okay wait, wait, wait. I remember this okay. coming back to me. Okay. I didn't see it, but I know no, what it is now. You have to watch it. It was like my favorite movie in 1998. Like I, me and my best friend were like obsessed with this movie and we thought it was like the most insane thing ever. It is a true story about the guy who like invented breast implants or something. Okay. So it goes through like the fifties all the way to like the eighties, like, okay. and so you see, like David Schwimmer, just in all these different eras, and like by the time he gets to the eighties, he's like a fucking maniac, like doing a bunch of coke. Right? Look, it's great. No one is in the eighties not doing a bunch of coke. No, it's like <laughs> that's the whole basis for this. Every character we're gonna hear about ever in the eighties does a lot of coke. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Lainey 
decided that she would get this idea of the plastic surgery resort center off the ground with the help of Larry's money. Yeah. And he had a ton of it. Larry was not so hot on the idea. First of all, he was not into the whole plastic surgery scene. And second, he was not a spendaholic like Lainey was. His money was, you know, a lot of it was tied up in investments. He was like very uh, sort of responsible with his money. Right. He's like, I want to retire and have my money last and be able to afford a comfortable lifestyle. Exactly. And Lainey loved spending and she loved wearing flashy clothing and driving expensive cars uh, and getting cosmetic surgery. So she was sort of like, what the fuck? Like, how dare you not give me a million dollars right now to get this started? Uh, So Larry ended up compromising with her because he was like, I'm not going to give you money for this center. And he helped her set up a plastic surgery referral center in Okeechobee. Now, this business was called the Center for Plastic Surgery. And basically, it was a center that would literally just refer patients to a doctor in Mexico City named Dr. Alejandro Kiros uh, for like a cut or a percentage. I guess so that she would take a cut. I mean, I, how much people in Okeechobee are getting plastic surgery? <laughs> I don't like Beverly know. Hills or something. I don't know. Maybe Larry was just like, ah, that'll keep her busy. It's like give her a little Etsy jewelry shop. Early. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the version back then. Oh, oh totally. <laughs> in late 1986, Larry Greenberger started doing a lot of coke again. <gasps> Laney began isolating him from his friends and managed to create a rift between him and Frank Rubino, who was her lawyer and also the co-owner of the yacht. Oh. So Laney accused Frank of improperly using this yacht. She charged that he was misusing their joint credit card. And when Larry confronted Frank, Everything seemed on the up and up. Like Frank produced receipts and was like, I haven't been misusing funds or our joint account together. But Frank was hurt that his friend would even accuse him of this. And Larry confessed that, okay, Lainey put me up to this. She's the one who told me to confront you about this, which pissed Frank off even more. He's like, you choose a a broad over your bud. (laughs) I mean, basically, like he just was like hurt. Like, why would you treat me like I'm some kind of criminal um, or stealing yeah, from like you. stealing yeah. from the company. So Larry and Frank agreed that Larry would just buy him out and that would put the problem to rest. Like, look, we just won't be in business together anymore because okay. this is like too much drama. What seemed like a fairly amicable agreement did not turn out that mm. way. Because a week later, Larry and Laney showed up at Frank's office with Bill Menser and that private detective that Laney had hired a few <gasps> years back when they were looking for Tally Rogers. Right. So they show up, you know, Laney and Larry show up at his office with, you know, a little muscle. Mm-hmm. And Larry handed Frank a piece of paper that said, sign the boat over to me or they'll kill your wife and you. Whoa. Frank knew Bill Menser because he had acted as his lawyer back in 1983 when Bill was arrested at LAX for cocaine possession charges. <gasps> so he's like, I know you. <laughs> you're saying you're going <laughs> you're saying you're going like I helped you get off. Yeah. Like I I like you didn't go to jail because of me. Now you're going to kill me yeah. over this yacht. Uh Bill said to Frank I like you, Frank. You've been good to me. But Lainey says you have to sign this or I'll have to kill you. What the hell? Bill and the private detective 
pulled their guns out at that (gasps) point to really show they meant business. And Frank was like, fine. And he signed over the boat. On the way out, Bill took Frank's Rolex and the keys to his Ferrari. That's bullshit. Yeah. The signing over his share of the boat apparently was not enough. He had to like kick him while he was down and take his watch and the keys to his car. I don't like this. And threats to Frank continued to come in until he handed over the title of his car to Bill Metzer. What the hell? Okay. Let's talk about where Tally Rogers ended up. Oh, right. Because remember, they were looking for him for a while. If you don't remember, he ran away from Los Angeles following a robbery he did. Of Laney. He robbed her Sherman Oaks home. He took... Over $200,000 worth of cash and 10 kilos of cocaine. So a lot of stuff. Following the robbery, he lived in South Carolina for a while before moving to Louisiana in the fall of 1983. By this time, he had split up from his wife, Betty. He had a new girlfriend, but that relationship didn't last long because Rogers was sent to prison for molesting her sons. Oh. Yeah. Gross. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, (laughs) but we will be back with more Tally Rogers. Okay. But I had to give you a quick update on what he was up to. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Back in Los Angeles, Robert Evans' film, The Cotton Club, did get made. It came out in 1984, and it starred Richard Gere, Gregory Hines, and Diane Lane. It was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and it was a box office bomb. The film didn't have terrible reviews, though. The New York Times said, Cotton Club is neither a smash nor a disaster. (laughs) So it was like, it was fine. I think it was more... 
coming off of Robert Evans, Francis Ford Coppola. Like, so the expectations were high, probably. Yes. And that's why it was sort of mediocre, made it seem like it was a bomb or something. Well, it was a financial bomb. Yeah. It wasn't a critical bomb. Right. But it wasn't a critical hit. Yeah, yeah. So people were like, oh, well, that was a total fucking flop. Yeah. I mean, it did cost a ton of money to make. It cost like $50 million to make. And, and then the the profits from it were like nothing. Yeah. So it was a disaster. Meanwhile, Los Angeles detectives were still working the Roy Raiden case. Oh, right. Even though it's been a few years now, they haven't made any arrests, but they're working it. By 1987, two new detectives were in charge of the investigation. They had just discovered where Lainey was now living. They got in touch with Lainey's friend in Las Vegas who ran the Susie Cream Cheese Boutique. This friend, a woman named Leslie, had recently been busted for coke and was in prison. By tracing the phone number that Lainey had used to call Leslie, the detectives were led to Lainey and Larry Greenberger's condo in Miami and then eventually to their P.O. box in Okeechobee. Oh. So they're like, oh, they're living up here now. The detectives were chasing down another lead as well. Back in 1983, when Bill Menser was arrested on cocaine charges, detectives searched his apartment and found Polaroid pictures of him and two other men at a desert-like canyon. In one picture, one of the men was holding a shotgun, and in another, a guy was holding a machine gun. Now, the backdrop of these photos looked suspiciously familiar. They looked like the site of the Roy Raiden murder. Yeah. So, like, what are these guys doing there? Right. Now, in 1987, detectives interviewed Bill Menser's ex-wife, Deborah to see if she could identify the other men in the photos. She identified Alex Marty, who was the Nazi, and in the other photo, she identified a man named Bill Ryder. Ryder was a former cop from Ohio who had become the head of security for Larry Flint. That's how he knew Bill Menser and Alex Marty, because remember, they worked security for right. Larry. The third man Deborah identified was Mark Fogel. He was the luxury car rental guy oh, right. that they all used. They had all gone target shooting together up at the canyon dressed in army fatigues, and that's when they took those pictures. So okay. they went back to the murder site. Damn. To just go target shooting. Like there's no other place? Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is like 65 miles north of L.A. That's so weird. And then they took pictures. Yeah. Deborah told detectives that after her and Bill split up, he had been hanging around with a woman named Linda Jacobs. Now, of course, she was referring to Lainey Jacobs. Okay, yeah. Next, detectives interviewed Tally Rogers at Angola State Prison. He told them about his relationship to Lainey Jacobs and that he was a drug runner for her. Is he in prison for molesting molesting the kids? Yes. Okay. He's there for three to five years, I believe. He talked about her dreams of making it in Hollywood and how the Cotton Club movie was going to be financed with drug money. He told them that he had met Roy through Laney in 1983 and that him and Roy became friends and did a lot of coke together. That coke, of course, came from Laney. Tally told the detectives that, yes, he did steal from her and that people had been looking to murder him because of it. He denied Roy having anything to do with the robbery. Remember, Lainey thought that Roy put Tally up to this. 
Detectives learned that shortly after Tally had fled Los Angeles, he wrote a letter in the event that he was murdered. So this was like a will and testament, right. sort of. The letter explained his relationship with Lainey and her dealings with Milan Belichese's. He even listed Milan's addresses in the letter. Months later, the detectives would fly to Miami to investigate Milan, and they later learned that he was in jail in Fort Lauderdale on trafficking charges. Bill Ryder was tracked down a couple months after the interview with Menser's ex-wife. He had moved to the Midwest by this point. He arrived in Los Angeles in June of 87 to meet with detectives. He told them, yes, I know who killed Roy Radin and that he was very scared of them. (sighs) He said, if they knew I was talking to you, they'd kill me and my family. He identified the killers as Bill Menser and Alex Marty. The men had bragged to him about killing Roy back in 1983. Uh, He said, quote, Marty just went crazy and started shooting him in the back of the head. When it was Bill's turn, he shot him once, kind of a coup de grace. Damn. Ryder said that both Laney and Robert Evans were responsible for this hit. Damn. During the interview, he also named Bob Lowe. Remember Bob yeah, Lowe? Yeah, of course. The limo, forget. the limo driver. <laughs> who, by the way, I will show you a picture of him later. He does nothing look, looks nothing like Rob Lowe. You know what? I, I didn't even think he would. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think we talked about that last week. He said Bob was with Bill Menser one night in the valley when Menser shot a woman named June Mincher to death on the street in Van Nuys. Now, June was a sex worker who drove a lavender Rolls Royce. Ooh. Bill Ryder said that Menser had used his gun, a twenty-two caliber pistol. Ryder explained to detectives that he had that gun to shoot rats at Larry Flint's property. <gasps> Ooh. And that one night, Bill Menser was like, I need to borrow your gun. Can, you, can I borrow your rat shooting gun? That's what he said. <laughs> can I borrow your rat shooting gun? I have to do a job. And Bill Ryder had no idea. I mean, I don't know what kind of job he thought he was going to do. But he shot this woman. On I'd st- never let someone borrow my gun. For a job? It just seems like sus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't have a gun. But if I did, it seems like I'm definitely not letting anyone take it. Mm-mm. Especially if I'm not good friends with them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, right. why would you let someone borrow a gun? It doesn't seem like something you borrow unless you're doing something bad. Yeah. I mean, he let him borrow it. And then this woman, June, got murdered. Yeah. Following the murder of June, a 24-year-old bodybuilder named Greg Cavalli, who came from a wealthy Beverly Hills family, was charged with the murder. <gasps> he was said to have ordered the hit. Now, I looked a little bit into this case. June had... uh beef with Greg Cavalli and his family. I, I, I didn't go too far into the details of it, but that was sort of the impetus for the hit being ordered out on her. I see. Police were never able to identify the hitman, and the testifying witnesses for the state were accused of being unreliable. The witnesses included a fellow trans sex worker and also someone who had previously been addicted to cocaine. Greg Cavalli was found not guilty in 1986. And like I said, they didn't never found the hitman. Right. But now Bill Ryder's telling investigators, oh, that was Bill Menser who killed this woman. Yeah. The detectives urged Ryder to help with them to do their investigation, but Ryder was very hesitant. He was terrified for him and his family's safety. 
but detectives considered the interview with Ryder to be the first real break in the case. They were now focused on Laney and the Cotton Club movie deal as the motive for Roy's murder. Detectives interviewed Milan Bellicesi's in jail. Also in jail with him was Joe Amer, who was one of Laney's ex-husbands. He was there on coke charges as well. Milan and Joe told the detectives that Laney was living in Okeechobee with her husband, Larry Greenberger. So back in Okeechobee, Laney was making plans to open up her plastic surgery resort in Mexico, and she needed her husband's financial help. But Larry still would not open his purse for her. Oh, damn. And she was furious about it. In April of 1988, Bill Ryder finally decided he would get in touch with detectives. This was like more than half a year later after he talked to them. He was going to help with the investigation. He gave them the gun that Bill Menser had used in the 1984 murder of June Mincher. The weapon was confirmed to be a match for the bullets that were found in June's head. Next, Ryder got back in touch with Bob Lowe and Bill Menser. At this time, Bob was living in Maryland. Ryder agreed to wear a wire while he talked to him. Ryder met Bob Lowe at the restaurant he managed. It was called Scoreboard Cafe. I looked it up. I couldn't find any information on it. Sounds like a sports bar. It probably was. During their talk, Bob admitted that he drove Roy Radin to the murder site. He also said, Menser and Marty shot Roy 13 times, seeing as how it was Friday the 13th. (gasps) He then said that he was told the hit on Roy was ordered by Laney and Bob Evans. Ooh, so they're trying to take Bob Evans into this. They're too. Ser- they at this point they think that Robert Evans was part of it. Was part of this hit. Ryder was next. Uh, he next arranged to meet up with Bill Menser back in Los Angeles. He was also fitted with a wire. Bill was happy to talk to Bill Ryder about both the murder of June Mincher and Roy Radin. Like he just started blabbing immediately. Yeah. It took no coaxing. One thing he said to Ryder about murdering Roy was, Alex called him Rodin, the big fat Jew. Now, Alex, who is the Nazi guy who helped murder Roy Radin, a lot of people said, oh, he would have done that for free. Oh. Like he he was like, he would have murdered any Jewish guy for free, according, according to several people. Right. He proceeded to describe the events of May 13th, 1983, in detail to Bill Ryder, having no clue that detectives were listening in. He even stated that the whole murder was over the Cotton Club movie deal. Detectives would continue taping conversations between Bill Ryder and Bill Menser for the next few months. One night in September, Ryder met Menser and his friend named Vinny D'Angelo for dinner at an Italian restaurant in L.A., Menser told Ryder that Vinny was visiting from Miami. He used to work for Carlos Letter, the drug lord. Letter had recently been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. After dinner, Ryder and Menser sat in the car while detectives were listening in. Menser mentioned a hit on a couple in Miami that D'Angelo had solicited him for. Menser offered to split the fee with Ryder if he wanted to help. D'Angelo also solicited Menser to help him burn down his house in Miami to collect on the insurance money. Now, the man who called himself Vinny D'Angelo was actually Larry Greenberger. Oh. So 
Larry Greenberger was at that dinner that night. At this time, Larry was scared to death about his impending indictment for his involvement with Carlos Letter, yeah. who had just been sentenced to life in prison. Larry had told Laney that he was going to Los Angeles to see a doctor about getting some cosmetic surgery done. Hmm. At this time, Laney had abandoned her dream of opening up the plastic surgery resort in Mexico and now had her sights set on real estate. She had been taking classes to get her realtor's license and had befriended a man that she met at the school, a 21-year-old man named Terry Squillante. Larry's sister Janice side-eyed Laney for how much time she seemed to be spending with this young man. While Larry was in Los Angeles, she reported back to him that his car was parked in their driveway. Tony Squillante? Terry Squillante. Terry Squillante. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I was like reading about Janice, Larry's sister, I can only picture Janice Soprano. Yeah, just such a busybody. Totally. Just like always in. And she's also trying to, she's trying to find fucked up things about Lainey to avoid dealing with her fucked up things. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. Janice. It's oh, like yeah. just to like, it's like an avoidance tactic. I just could not stop thinking about Janice Soprano yeah. in this whole time. So, yeah, she goes to her brother and she's like, I saw that Terry Squillante kid's Terry car. Squillante. <laughs> you better watch it. Uh, I mean, at this point, Janice was irritated with Lainey in general. How old is Lainey at this point? She's like in her early 40s. Okay. Lainey was being a bitch to Janice, I guess. Yeah. And Janice actually told Miriam, the nanny, Lainey's a bitch. Yeah, so, I mean, Lainey should be nicer if she's kind of scheming, I think. Yeah, Lainey was a very, uh, like, she could turn on her southern innocent charm when, when she wanted she, to. When she wanted to, she was very good at that, but she was also very much, like, not afraid to be like, I will fucking put you in your place yeah. and show you who's boss. Yeah. Um, and Janice was, like, on to her at this she point. She didn't like Janice. So she, she never put the charm on She her. never put the charm yeah. on Janice, no. When Larry returned to Florida, Lainey and Terry picked him up at the airport, and Lainey and Larry argued the whole way home. Lainey continued to flaunt her friendship with Terry Squillante in front of her husband. It really seemed like something was going on with them. He was irritated when they went off to the beach together. <laughs> on Tuesday, September 13th, Larry returned home after spending the day in Palm Beach. Larry and Terry were there when he arrived. They all ordered a pizza and ate dinner together. After dinner, the three of them went onto the porch and fired a few rounds at a target from Larry's Smith & Wesson. Lainey then went to bed in her bedroom, and Terry slept in a guest room. Larry remained on the porch drinking, smoking a little <laughs> weed, doing a little coke, and cleaning his gun. Now, this was not an unusual activity for Larry to do. He liked to sit on the porch at night and clean his gun. This is so Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Let's drink and shoot a gun <laughs> off the porch. <laughs> Just after midnight, Larry's parents received a frantic phone call from Lainey. Larry had shot himself, she said. <clears throat> By the time his parents and sister Janice arrived, the cops were there. Larry was still sitting in his chair on the porch, a bullet wound next to his left eye, and the gun was in his right hand. 
Gunshot residue tests performed on Laney and Terry Squilante proved to be pointless as they told the officers we had all fired that gun earlier that night because we were target shooting. I can only imagine Janice's face (laughs) during this whole thing. (laughs) Just wait. Just wait. The medical examiner found that the bullet wound appeared to have been shot at a distance much further than the length of Larry's arm. The angle of the gunshot also appeared to have been from someone standing over him. Right. So this death was ruled a homicide. (gasps) Janice was certain that her brother did not commit suicide. He would not do that, she said. After the funeral, a friend of Janice's told her that her husband had told her that Larry once told him of how Lainey had a man killed. Ooh. Janice later met with Anne Louise Bardak at a Black Angus restaurant. <laughs> Remember Black yes, Angus? Yes, of course. Okay. Dude. They still exist. Do they? Yeah, because when I went to Pomona once, I saw a Black Angus. <laughs> and I was like, I should go there. Because I never went, and it always seemed so fancy. I always wanted to go there when I was a kid. Yeah. I've never it been. It seemed like upscale, you know? The commercials were a little intimidating. Because they're fire grills. I mean, like, it was just, like, a very hardcore, like, this is a restaurant for hardcore steak eaters. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably terrible. Look, I bet you they have something, like, twice-baked potatoes. I know, and that's why, (laughs) like, for me, I knew it was going to be all about the sides. Yeah. Yeah. I like Outback Steakhouse. I've been there before. Oh, I used to love going to Outback. I like Outback. I used to get there, like, they had, like, a special. It was pretty cheap, like, a steak and, like, a side. It was like twelve ninety nine. Well, because like, yeah. that's the kind of place you can get like fried shrimp at. Oh, let's. We should go to chain restaurants when they open when we're like comfortable. Yeah, because I haven't been to those in a while. I really miss that. Yeah, I, I really go. miss that. Okay, so so Janice met with Anne Louise Bardak several years later at a Black Angus restaurant in town to be interviewed, and this is what Janice said to Anne: "We think she killed him." The night he died, we ran over to the house, and she didn't have a tear in her eye. Not then, nor at the funeral. She told my mother that night, we were supposed to go tomorrow and change things, so if anything happened, I wouldn't have to pay inheritance tax. Can you believe that? (laughs) Fearing that Lainey would flee the country following the murder of her husband, detectives in Los Angeles rushed to make plans to arrest her for the Roy Raiden murder. On October 2nd, Laney was lured to a Holiday Inn in Orlando by Okeechobee Lieutenant Don Fisher for questioning about her husband's death. Laney agreed to go to the interview if she would be allowed to go back to the farmhouse, which was now a crime scene, because she said she needed to go pick up some things. So they're like, okay, but you got to do this interview first. I always like when people are about to be like arrested or questioned, and they're like, I need to get some things. (laughs) Like, I don't think that's what I would be thinking. I'd be so scared. Oh, yeah. There's something just really funny. Like, well, I need to pick up some things from my house first if it's going to be long. Yeah. Like, how long is this going to be? My moisturizer is on the bathroom That's how you know when they're guilty. Like, they need to pick up some things. Right. (laughs) Now, during the interview, Lainey told police that Larry shot himself because he was sad about his droopy eye. Oh, where'd that come from? (laughs) Well, according to the nanny Miriam, when she was later interviewed by Anne Louise Bardak, she was like, yeah, he had a droopy eye from the surgery he got in L.A. Oh. And he was 
and and Lainey was like, yeah, he was really, he was so depressed about that droopy eye, he shot himself. Did he get eye surgery? Or was it like anesthesia related? It was like a botched Okay, something or other. Apparently, but that's what Lainey said. Right, like he could obviously probably get that fixed. Of course he could get that fixed. But she said he was so depressed about that he killed himself. Following the interview, Lainey was arrested for the murder of Roy Radin. Also arrested were Bill Menser, Alex Marty, and Bob Lowe. So they got all of them. Leading up to the trial for the murder of Roy Radin, the investigation into the murder of Lainey's husband stopped. There was way bigger fish to fry. They were solely focused on preparing for this trial. Terry Squillante and six-year-old Dax visited Lainey in jail where she had been remanded every weekend. In January of 1989, Lainey arrived in Los Angeles for the preliminary hearings. In May, Robert Evans was ordered by the prosecution to testify at the hearings. He pled the fifth on every question that he was asked. (gasps) And they were like, what the... They were pissed. Yeah. He He wouldn't answer any of the questions. And he said it was on the advice of his lawyer, which it was. Right. At this point, Robert Evans was still considered a suspect. Right. But he would never be charged with anything or arrested. I don't think he had anything to do with... Roy Raiden's murder at all. He just didn't want to get involved, basically. And he was scared. Like, these were some powerful people he was dealing with. um, But I don't think he had anything to do... I don't either. ...with the hit. Um, So the hearings lasted a really long-ass time. So And so did the jury selection. And the trial began in the fall of 1991. In the opening statements, Deputy District Attorney David Kahn told the court that Roy Radin was killed on the orders of Lainey Greenberger by her hired hitmen, and the motive was greed over the Cotton Club movie deal. Lainey's attorney, Ed Shohat, asserted that his client was framed. He told the court that the real killer was Milan Belichese's. <gasps> Not true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, this is the defense right, strategy. Right. Lainey testified in her own defense. She she claimed that she was afraid of Roy Raiden. And this is when she's really tur- turning on her southern charm. Right. She's speaking in a she's very... She's so chaotic. Of course she testified in her own defense. <laughs> she's a very confident woman. Yeah. She said that Bill Menser told her that Roy had a gun and was planning on killing her on May 13th, 1983. Hmm. Lainey said that she got out of the limo that was headed to the restaurant, and when she got out, Bill got in, and a fight between him and Roy ensued, and that Roy was killed during the struggle for the gun. Yeah. The, her getting out is just inexplicable. Right. Like, she's in on it. There's no other... There's no reason a woman would just get out of a limo in the middle of nowhere, especially in L.A. It's not like a walking city. And a lot of areas, you wouldn't just get out on the side of the road. like. And not if you have reservations to La Scala. No, it's crazy. She told the jury that she had no idea that Roy would be harmed. She just assumed that Bill was going to talk to him. About what? <laughs> <laughs> the trial continued into the summer of 1991. By this time, Robert Evans was back at Paramount with a five-year contract. Ooh. He's back on top, baby. Yeah. The jury reached their verdicts in July of 1991. All four defendants, 
Lainey Greenberger, Alex Marty, Bill Menser, and Bob Lowe were found guilty. <gasps> Lainey and Bob were found guilty of second-degree murder, and Bill and Alex of first-degree murder. Lainey was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility Shit. of parole. So she's still there. Yeah. I looked her up to see what she was up to. I did find a picture of her, like it, like it looks like a current picture. Right. And then I found a like a, a, a like a change.org petition to get her out of prison. She's like in her 70s now. Yes, right? she's in her 70s now. So that's as far I can't find any like current newspaper articles about her. Right. Everything sort of stopped after 1992 when the verdict or or yeah, ninety two was when the sentencing yeah. came back, and yeah, so that's the end of that story. Damn. So, I guess Robert Evans is the only one who really did good from that deal. Yeah, <laughs> like everyone basically ended up dead or in prison. Right. Yeah. So Robert Evans, yeah, I mean, he was sort of uh, in the, in the Anne Louise Bardak article that I read he was quoted as basically being like, this was a nightmare for eight years of my life. I, went, I believe it. Oh, totally. I think he got in with these people and could not fucking get away from them. Yeah, he got way in over his head. He was obviously struggling with cocaine addiction. Right. And got in with the, with the crowd that he felt like he could not get out of. Uh, working with. I think he got involved with them because he thought he would control the situation and then it just got out of hand and he was like, whoa, not only can I not control it, I'm like worried for my life. Like, Right. Yeah. So yeah, but that's that's the story and as promised, we will be talking about some Son of Sam conspiracies that are related to this case. Cool. We'll have that for you for the mini episode. Great. We should... Post some more pics too. There's probably some good ones. I wish there were more pics. There weren't. There's not a lot of good ones. Uh, look, there's like one picture of Lainey Greenberger. I want to see her. She's very. She's a very pretty woman. The one picture, except for the one when she's older, the one picture I like I was I've ever been able to find of her is when she's in court. Oh, so I'll post that on okay. our, on our Instagram page. But I was like, def- like no pictures of her in like Halston or whatever, like yeah. clubbing. Like that's what I want to see. I think that there's just not a proliferation of photos like there are now. Yes, uh, for people who aren't famous. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, you get spoiled. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, great. Well, that's it. We will see you all on Friday for the mini episode. Now we're going to record our Patreon episode. Yeah. Okay. The bye. after show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.